You're listening to Fair Game with your host, Robert Smith. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Fair Game Podcast. I'm your host, Robert Smith. Today's guest joins us from her home in Florida, where she is the director of the Florida Festivals and Events Association. Ladies and gentlemen, this is Suzanne Neve. Suzanne, welcome to the show. Well, thank you. Thank you. So happy to be here. I'm super glad you could be with us on the show today. You know, so far we've had a variety of uh, fair managers, entertainers, and even carnival operators on the show, but you're an association director. So you kind of approach this pandemic a little differently before we get to how the pandemic kind of hit your organization. Can you give the folks listening a little bit about your role as the head of FFEA? Absolutely. So um, FFEA is a membership-based association for um, entities, organizations, individuals, and suppliers to the festival event and festival and event industry here in the state of Florida. Um, as the CEO for the organization, I'm um, responsible for basically all of our operations, our event management, and um, we currently have about 700 member um, organizations um, that represent about 5,500 festivals and events in a normal non-pandemic year. That's a lot. I mean, Florida's a big state, but I, you know, I think you, you start thinking about, you know, in my realm, state and county fairs, and there's only so many counties, but when you really break it down and having um, myself been a guest at your convention in the past, there really are a ton of small events um, from a variety of different jurisdictions, county parks and rec, you name it. Uh, what are some of the different challenges that you're facing as an association director in the middle of this pandemic? So like every other organization and business out there, we've had to um, really, I, I like to use the word adapt. I've grown to strongly dislike the word pivot. Thank you. Um, we've, had, <laughs> we've, we've had to adapt um, everything from our strategic plan to how we do events to essentially even how we operate. And we've always um, served as a resource to our members, but now more than ever, that has become our biggest priority. Um, so really us as an organization, whereas I would normally spend a good chunk of my time on things like conference planning and planning, you know, networking and educational events for our members, especially in the months of March, April, May, and really in um, through now, we really kind of had to take a step back and look at see, you know, what is it that our members need in this moment? Uh, we've always been really focused on our member needs and, and what we can do to help them and help the industry as a whole. And a lot of that really kind of changed and shifted earlier this year. So as an organization, we've had to adapt um, how we do our networking events. We are um, not currently doing in-person um, smaller networking events, although we are scheduled to pick that up here in the very near future. Um, however, we are now doing weekly Zoom networking events, which have been very impactful um, and have brought together all different types of members that normally wouldn't have the opportunity to network and meet each other as well too. So just kind of chugging along, do what we can to, to best serve our members and, and adapting along the way with them. So March was obviously a pretty dramatic turning point for our industry and for the world when it came to this pandemic. And I think it had a particularly you know, devastating impact on us in, in events. Do you remember what you were thinking and feeling as these events across the country back in March all began to fall down? Oh gosh, yeah, March 13th, Friday the 13th, right? <laughs> so that was the day that <clears throat> the NBA kind of shut down and um, we started to see the trickle down effects from that for sure. 
I remember earlier in the, no, I remember two weeks before having dinner in West Palm with a board member and her saying, I can't believe we're not talking about this more. It's going to impact us so much. And in all honesty, not it not being, it was definitely on my radar, but not being a huge concern or prior, priority at that point. It was mid to late February. Um, and then come first week in March and we're start to see like, oh gosh, this is gonna be a real thing. Hopped on some conference calls that the governor was doing along with Visit Florida to get some stats and figure out what the plan was right away, push that communication out to our members. And at the time in Florida, we had three cases. I remember it exactly. And all of those cases were travel related. They were not community spread. And we would, we would update those every day, but we were still under the, the double digit mark. And, you know, but then all of a sudden it kind of just felt like, you know, once Disney made the decision to close, once the NBA decided to shut down one by one cancel the following week, I canceled from our online event calendar, which is basically a tool where our members submit their events. So in any given year, about 5,000 events on there. The following week in March, third week in March, I canceled over 600 events from our calendar. Um, and that was just events in wow. the months of March and April. Um, you know, fast forward then to end of March, early April, I'm now canceling all of April and all of May. And we're still kind of having these discussions about, well, what does 4th of July look like? Are we able to have 4th of July, if we can have it, what does it look like? And then all of a sudden it was just the big wash of cancellations for the 4th of July. And 4th of July got pushed into Labor Day and then all of a sudden we were canceling Labor Day. So it's just kind of been a little bit of a constant um, with that and definitely um, completely understandable because safety is you know, first priority, first and foremost, especially back in you know, quarter one, quarter two um, with those events, but disheartening still at the same time. you know, and disheartening because it's not, it's not about me or the association. It's about the, the livelihoods of our members, but also the community impact that those events have. A lot of people don't realize it's far stretching beyond just the organization that's producing the event and okay, yeah, they're not going to make money this year. They're going to lose money this year. But what about all the other people that go into producing that events, the suppliers, yeah. the concessionaires, all those yeah. other people um, are impacted by that as well too. So yeah, and we've spoken at length on the podcast about with our, you know, other fair managers and, and marketing directors and from fairs and state and county fairs that have been on um, about the impact our fairs have on their communities. And while FFEA does include a number of those fairs in Florida amongst their membership, your organization includes an enormous number of small festivals and, in, in, you know, city and county jurisdiction event planners, you know, a, a county parks and rec type group. How does a shutdown like that really, I mean, we know at the big level, like when the State Fair of Texas cancels, we know we're talking big dollars, but what happens when the city of Tavares has to cancel something and in, it's an event that only got 3,500 people, but it has a massive impact on a small community. Can you talk about that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, community impact to us, like I mentioned, was our, our biggest concern. Um, a lot of, we, about 40% of our members work for cities or municipalities. Um, and we saw a lot of those employees that were, you know, typically in a normal year producing and planning events now being shifted over to they're doing food distribution or they're helping to staff testing sites. So in that sense, we were grateful that they were still able to stay employed and that, you know, when the time comes, they're able to, to shift back as well too. But you know, we talk about the community impact of events and, you know, we don't even just mean, you know, the impact of, you know, the, the people that are helping to put on the event and the suppliers, but 
What about the impact of local small business that the event brings, you know, the economic impact of these events and, and when they happen, you know, an event happens and you shut and they're happening on main street, the amount of business that that main street's able to pick up over that one day or two days or however many days um, is huge for them as a small business. So the trickle down effect of, of canceling events, fairs and festivals um, in general um, is, is really, I think, more than what's being understood or measured at the national level. So I'm always grateful for people like yourself and fair man managers that are um, that understand that and are willing to bring that to light. Do you have a sense of from your membership of how many of those events I know a lot of the events are put on by like, you know, the city of Tampa or Bradenton or whatnot. So, I mean, the city is, the municipality is obviously not going away, but budgets change, budget allocations change dramatically. Do you have an idea of how many of those member events, um, assuming we can reopen at some point in 21, how many of those member events are still in a financial position to reopen and how many may be gone for good? Yeah. So it's a really great question. Um, we, a lot of our city's budget cycles began, began October 1st. Um, so they were, our city, the employees were expected to kind of make decisions about what those events were going to look like way back in July and August. Um, and so now with them being in the new October one year, the encouraging thing that I have been seeing that makes me really hopeful is the innovation of these smaller events and of the city events. So whereas they may not be able to hold their event as usual, they're coming up with unique and creative ways to still A, stay relevant and B, um, provide that economic impact for the community. And then finally, hopefully um, start to generate some, some um, financial revenue for themselves as well. In terms of your question regarding, you know, how many may not return, Robert, I don't have an exact percentage, but I can tell you that, you know, if a city normally planned for 50 events in a calendar year, they're looking at closer to 25 to 30 for moving forward in the so next year. So we could be seeing nominally a 50% 50. reduction. Correct. Correct. So yes. crossing fingers, you know, that by the time things work out, if we have a shorter lockdown and hopefully by spring this lets up, you know, maybe that number instead of 50% is 35%, but we're still looking at a hit on a lot of those events. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think the the encouraging side too is the new events that are coming out of it. I mean, the drive-in events that happened over Halloween weekend, that holiday weekend were crazy busy, did extremely well. Um, if they were selling tickets, sold out tickets far enough in advance that you know, made it, you know, worth our while to do that, that type of event. There are some that were not selling tickets that we're doing it strictly for community benefit. Mm -hmm. um, we're seeing a lot of innovation in, you know, these pod situations here in downtown Orlando, we have pods installed on the great lawn of our, of our um, uh, theater here downtown. And that's a six month commitment um, all to just help drive traffic to that area where you can essentially attend a music festival of sort, but be in your pod. Um, so different things like that, that I think are unique. I'm sure you've talked to several fair managers about fair food drive-throughs and things they're doing for that um, yeah. as well too. So I think as much as possible, if we can just even incrementally start to get back to business, because what that's going to do is it's going to um, increase the comfort level of everyone involved. If we can do it safely and successfully in a smaller format that we can eventually and slowly get back to um, what we're used to in terms of size and scope. Um, you know, I'm hearing events that normally would be a large scale art festival doing smaller pop-up festivals where they would normally have 200 artist booths. Maybe they have 10, 
um, and they sell a limited number of tickets and they do this event and it's successful. And now city, city council feels comfortable that and events are able to be done. Patrons have confidence. Artists are getting back to business and getting back to work. And so I'm, we've been kind of, you know, trying to foster that type of mindset as much too, so that maybe that 50% is kind of, you know, maybe a hopefully lessened by the load of some of these smaller events. Sure. Now it's got to be a challenge for some of these events. Even if you go from, you know, 200 artists to 10 or 20 artists, you're doing an event. There's still a a general liability insurance certificate that has to be attached to that event. And I'm guessing not only for the event planner, for the producer of the event, but then I know whenever we go to, you know, FFEA or IEFE or any of these, we as exhibitors have to have and, and performers, we have to have our liability insurance. Are you seeing any movement in that insurance market where are the premiums going up? Are they reluctant to issue insurance certificates right now? It seems to me like if you were to put on an event and all of a sudden you, even if you only had 200 people, but now there's, you know, 300 cases connected to your event, that could be a disaster. Yeah. So that's a great question. Obviously a lot of shifts in insurance, um, and legal language and clauses and contracts for everything from entertainers to, you know, um, artists and vendors and suppliers and whatnot. In general, we have not seen or heard of huge changes in terms of premiums or um, insurers not insuring an event. However, there is now an exclusion policy for communicable disease that may not have been there before, which means that yes, we'll insure your event, but if you get sued um, and are held liable for one person or an outbreak, it's not, not only will the um, damages not be covered, but your um, legal defense will not be covered. So the biggest advice that we are having, um, that we're sharing with our event planners is, you know, obviously, you know, there are certain legal um, things that are required if you're going to file a suit. And one of them is proof that you actually got sick at the event. Okay. And that's going to be a very challenging thing to prove just because of the way that this particular disease works. Right. Right. And so we all know that. However, um, so in, for most cases, unless an event is completely, um, just doesn't take the safety precautions or do what they need to do. Um, you're probably going to be okay there, but how much money will you spend as an organization defending yourself Right. When the right to defend clauses are changing, that that messes with things dramatically. So that's the biggest thing that that needs to be taken into consideration there. Sure. And for some some places, it's not as concerning. You know, if you're a city, obviously your insurance policy is completely different than if you're a smaller event. Um, But definitely for our smaller events and organizations, that's something that we're having to really look at. Yeah, um, it, it just seems to me that maybe the reason the premiums aren't going up yet is if they if they have the ability to put that exclusion in to be able to say, yeah, we'll insure your event. But if you get sick, that's not on us. That could change in the future. You know, all it takes is a lawsuit or a case law or a state legislature to file a, a piece of uh, a bill that says no insurance companies have to cover that, in which case they're going to turn around and say, cool, your premium just went, you know, from. 15,000 for the event to 85 or a hundred thousand for the event. Sure. Yeah. And with Florida already being a highly litigious state in the first place, I mean, are we they know. really highly litigious? <laughs> I mean, last I heard, you know, we're recording this the day after judgment day. <laughs> 
guys, it's November 4th that we're recording this. The last I heard, all the lawyers on the planet were moving up towards Pennsylvania and Wisconsin. And Michigan. <laughs> so you might be off the hook down there in Florida for a little bit, it, but it does offer a real challenge. You know, there's, there's the reality of, okay, well, if we can all agree to wear masks, even if we, it's reluctantly, we agree to wear masks, we agree to make sure we uh, stay physically distant from each other, uh, wash hands, take those precautions that we take, especially like now every flu season, you wash your hands, you, you know, put plastic bags over your kids' heads because they become little germ, germaphobe, <laughs> germ transmitters. Um, sure. You know, if we agree to do all that, you would think, hey, you know, we're probably in the clear for these events, but there's real dollars behind it with these insurance companies and they have a very vested interest in not paying out massive sums of money. So I think this is a challenge that my gut feeling is what the insurance market looks like might change completely in a month and, and for sure could change next year. And we just have to be ready to go with those, with those changes and adjust. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the other thing that is, needs to be considered for policies that are being written right now too is the losses that insurance companies had over the last nine or 10 months because of events that were canceled um, where they weren't insured or you know, a typical policy was refunded as well too. So they may not be raising rates right now to try to get people to renew even with that clause in there just to recoup the losses they may have had on premiums right. for the last 10 months as well too. Sure, but in 18 months, that premium might Correct. go up 200% on you now. Absolutely. Yep. Now, absolutely. Once they recoup some of that and then they're ready to, to push a little harder. So it's, it's definitely something that is constantly changing. And, and all of us, not only, you know, you as someone who puts on events or an, a fair manager or an event planner, but certainly all of us who are entertainers, I mean, our liability insurance for most of us runs a few hundred bucks a year, but you know, that, that $300 could become a thousand real quick. And sure, it's just something absolutely. we need to be aware of. So looking back at 2020, it feels like if I can remember back that far, I was a young man back then at the beginning of 2020, <laughs> uh, while the rest of the I country, <laughs> yeah, and I got wrinkles everywhere <laughs> and I gained the coat. I didn't catch COVID-19. I gained the COVID-19. So I'm with you. I'm yeah, with you. You're good. Rough, <laughs> rough year there. Um, but it seemed like, well, at least out here in New Mexico, I know our governor was locking us down and other states were starting to lock down. It seemed like Florida and uh, Governor DeSantis down there were a little reluctant to do so at first. Can you kind of take us through what that shutdown process looked like? Yeah, so I think the biggest challenge for us here in Florida was the lack of consistency because we never did go through a true um, state, like complete shutdown. Um, we had a phased system for reopening. Um, the way that it worked with our shutdown was individual counties began to shut down um, based on their numbers. Um, and then we kind of eventually got to the point um, where we, we entered a, you know, a, a version of a shutdown, essentially. Um, we moved through the phase one reopening pretty quickly um, in about two weeks. Um, and then we were in phase two for a pretty long time. Um, and the southeast part of the state, due to the fact that their numbers were significantly higher um, than other parts of the state, um, did not move into phase two when the rest of the state did move into phase two. Um, and the governor worked with the, the county mayors there on, on keeping those restrictions in place. Um, and then all of a sudden, gosh, what was it? Probably four or six weeks ago, there was press conference. No one knew it was coming. No one had any idea. And it was, 
we're going to phase three on Friday. And this was like on a Wednesday. And we were all like, wait, what? <laughs> like, what happened? Like, happened we had, quick, huh? It just was like that. Um, and so we are now officially in phase three. And phase three for us is a complete opening. Um, there is now that being said, um, counties can set their own restrictions. Um, however, the governor currently has an executive order that says if a county has a mask mandate, um, they cannot enforce that with a fine. Um, so even though I'm in Orange County and there is a mask mandate here, if I am somewhere without a mask on, I can't be fined for it. Um, so there's really not a lot of. So it's, uh, a, it's a mandate without teeth. Correct. So you might correct. get stopped by someone like, you know, if you're walking down the street and a police officer saw you, they might say, hey, man, you know, this is Orange County. We do require masks, but they, there's no enforcement teeth behind it. Correct. Now, a private business obviously has the authority to, do, to you know, do what they want to do um, in terms of it. And that's caused, you know, some some the occasional pushback, which I'm sure you see, you know, the occasional viral video on, on social media about, you know, what happens there with that. But, you know, that Florida then, man, it's always Florida man, Florida man. Always Florida man isn't it? Oh, Florida. Um, we love you. <laughs> Can't beat the weather, right? <laughs> So yeah, that, that lack of consistency, um, I think from the top down has, has really been our biggest challenge in terms of what's open, what's not opening, who has a mask rule, who doesn't, what percentage your venue can be, what number of people you can have, especially from the events perspective. It's like, okay, what are we allowed to do? What aren't we allowed to do? And there's just not a lot of direction there, which makes it challenging. Sure. And I get the feeling, even though it's a phase three opening now, like you say, with the different uh, counties being able to do what they want. We had Stacy Wade on, who's the director up at the Lake County Fair up there in Eustis. And she, you know, she told us that she, she being a resident of Orange County, when she literally crosses the county line, it's a whole different world. It absolutely is. I was in Lake County last weekend and, and um, it is, she is 100% accurate. <laughs> it's a completely different world. Um, there is a mask mandate in Orange County, no mask mandate in Lake County. Um, and Orange County is still pretty, again, it's up to each individual private business on their decision-making in terms of what their occupancy percentage would be like. They are cleared to operate at 100% occupancy. However, the majority of our restaurants and bars are still limiting themselves to the 50% number. Again, so they're, the they're self-limiting. They're self-limiting, exactly. Well, and that's probably not a bad idea because you, know, you can have laws and whatnot, but again, you from their perspective, what's their operating insurance say? What are, sure. you know, what are, what are, if their insurance company's advising on something, then they might want to stick to it. Obviously, Central Florida uh, exists because of tourism. The theme parks are a massive, like they're the anchor for, for Central Florida. Disney's recently has laid off something like what, 28,000 some odd people. I'm I as I understood that I could be wrong, but as I understood that that's between both Disneyland and California and Disney that's World. Correct. But they also, and this one was a little more personal to me, just laid off what seven or eight hundred, almost a thousand of their entertainment crew that you know the citizens of Hollywood Boulevard that or that work the the studios. I remember them being there when I was on the college program in two thousand, where I met Sarah. These are entertainers that are independent contractors just like myself and now they are unemployed they got nada what kind of um do you get a feeling from ffea being ahead of that are you connected to any of those people do you kind of what do you see is going on with that yeah absolutely so um it's a december 1st layoff um so they're they're you know temporarily still there um 
it was a very sad day when that was announced, obviously, because not just, you know, out of respect and, and concern for those that, that lost their positions, but, you know, as a child walking into Disney, you're greeted by those people. Yep. And that's not going to happen anymore. And so, you know, Disney kind of invokes and all the theme parks, I shouldn't be and you know, exclusive of the others, but these theme parks kind of invoke that emotion of, you know, recalling memories of certain things. And that particular group is such a large and strong component of that, um, that I wonder, you know, what, what it will feel like um, when, when going there moving forward. Um, I do know we work with, we have quite a few agencies here in central Florida that represent independent um, event contractors. On the positive side there, um, I'm seeing a lot of them um, hiring those Disney workers for other different types of events that are going on, um, especially around the holiday time period. Yeah. How long that can last past the holidays, I really don't know. Um, but you start to kind of, you know, from a, a staffing perspective for both the tourism and the events industry, you get concerned about the, the potential exodus of qualified talent from our industry into another industry. Um, and if you have that, that exodus, I mean, for those of you listening, you know, we're not talking about the people that, that are in costume as, as characters. Those are actual cast members that are hired at their hourly rate and they work for Disney. We're talking the independent contractors and you may not realize, but when you walk into the magic kingdom or you walk into studios and there's someone in a period piece dressed up, you know, for that time period. And they come up and they talk to you as if they're in that time period. And they do little skits and shows from that, that period. Um, you know, the magicians and the jugglers that are at the boardwalk resort, all these little people that put you into that, that kind of fantasy land that they want to build. When you walk down Main Street, it's, you know, now once this goes through, it's just going to be themed buildings, which I mean, it's cool. It's Disney, right? But there's always for me something about walking down the street. And I remember Sarah and I being there once and the lady came up, we were looking at the map. And of course she comes right up and she's like, you know, they've got all this new stuff around here. And, and, and what can I, where can I help you find or, you know, something like that. And she's doing it in her accent, whatever the, the accent was. And it's just so creative and wonderful that it puts you in that moment. It really gives you a special touch. And that, that may not be here, be there now. And, and my concern is what happens if, you know, if this shutdown runs through, but, you know, let's say by March, Disney goes, all right, we're seeing a market correction here. We're starting to reopen. We're, we're a little better. Let's bring some of these folks back. Cool. So let's say you get 80% of them back. If this goes on another year, 18 months, what's going to happen is they're going to desperately be trying to find people to fill those roles. And, and we're not talking people that just showed up six months ago, we're talking people that have been with the company 30 years. That's a tough hit. Yeah. I mean, I mean, we talk about it even, you know, outside of, of entertainment is all the way down to like your stage hands. Like you don't just show up on an event site and are a stage hand. There's so much knowledge and even safety that goes into that. And that's not something you can train overnight. Um, how about the guys that are shooting off fireworks shows? I mean, 
there's not a lot of that going on right now. That's an intense and a long training process. And these companies have invested in these employees or even contractors. It's significant in training and knowledge and, you know, comp- everything all the way down to company values. And, you know, I completely understand um, the, the company position from the need of having to let some of those people go because you want them to have a job to come back to and the company doesn't exist if I continue to pay people and I don't have the money to be able to do it, right? So Correct. in order to remain viable and sustainable, sometimes we have to make these kinds of challenging decisions. But when you put yourself in the position of that business person, they don't wanna do that because when it comes time to hire the person back, these people are leaving and going to other industries. So I think that's another challenge that we're going, that we maybe are not understanding or, or really completely grasping at this point. But I think, you know, six, nine, 12 months down the road is when we're really going to start to see that as well, too, is that that just need for qualified talent that maybe doesn't exist because they said, listen, I, I, I couldn't, I had to move on. I went to this and I have this new job and it's steady, it's reliable, you know, so I'm just going to stay here because I don't know what's going to happen. You know, maybe right. there's another pandemic and however long and this, I'm back in the same situation again, so. Yeah, I think the face of of what entertainment, at, especially at the big theme parks, is going to change dramatically for the, you know, the next eighteen to thirty six months. I was talking to another um, another he's a former fair manager at in Mobile, Scott Tyndall, who was with the Greater Gulf State Fair there for a while, and he reminded me, and I had forgotten about this, that in nineteen eighteen, you know how many years they had to wear masks. They I don't. That's a great question. Three years. It was the end of 1921 wow. when they finally were able to, to cut the mass. And I think that when I heard that, I was like, that gives me some context, you know? And if you consider how we are today, I mean, obviously we have far better sanitation standards today. We, we have better, you know, we soap up, we wash our hands, we stay cleaner. If we're not feeling well, we stay home. We just, plus our community, our ability to communicate you know, back in the day, they were waiting for newspapers to come tell them what was going on. We now sure. can instantly break in on Facebook or, you know, MSNBC or whatever, and instantly get the information out. So I'm thinking if they went three years, we're probably 18 to 24 months is my mm-hmm. guess with mass. And I think we just need, I hate it. You know, for anybody listening, I, on the record, I, I hate wearing a mask. It irritates my face. It's annoying. It fogs up my glasses. I've almost stepped out into the parking lot and, and almost gotten run over because as I step out, <laughs> I breathe, I put my sunglasses on and it fogs mm-hmm. my glasses and I take the next step and I'm like, I can't see where I'm going right now. All these things that are a challenge. But I think if we just take a deep breath and put that aside, maybe we do get through that. Um, and that obviously we've heard all about, you know, Florida man on on Twitter and and the news, what's your general feeling on how folks are handling 2020 down in Florida? Um, You mean in terms of like life in general or um, like wearing masks and kind of abiding by what CDC guidelines are? Well, let's go with both. Let's start by the CDC guidelines and mask wearing. Are are they, because I know early on is they, you know, and I don't know if it was Florida early on, you saw the cameras that, you know, CNN would go to, you know, the beach someplace. And these people are like, we're here to party. But I'm like, dude, you're from Massachusetts. Like you're, this is different. What about the locals? How are they feeling with the lockdown? So this is another situation where it's very um, similar to what we talked about earlier, where it's, it's so different from one County to the next. 
Um, the counties that have a mask mandate, I think that everyone's kind of accustomed to it at this point. They're like you, they don't like it. They understand it's for the greater good. They wanna get back to business. Um, they wanna get back to work. So they're willing to do it um, without complaining. But when you move on over to a county that doesn't have a mandate, um, I think you see a little bit of a different, um, different sentiment there of people really don't wear them unless they're going into a business that requires it. Um, there's not as much of a sense of like, in my personal opinion anyway, community obligation, like a for the greater good type situation. It's more of, you know, like my own personal rights type feeling. Um, and so I would say we're about 50-50 in the state right now on mask mandate versus no mandate and on, on wearing them versus not wearing them. Um, the interesting thing, and I haven't actually looked at this, to me would be to kind of see what the numbers look like from one county to the next on where there's a mandate and where there's not. Um, and one of the biggest things that, that we've been talking about with our members and as an association is like, okay, we're starting to you know, dip our toe in the water with, with putting events on again. And what is the enforcement of, if you're going to say, you know, you're required to wear a mask to attend our event, what does that enforcement look like so that we don't end up being on the news as a viral video about Florida man or woman, you know, refuses to wear a mask and, and whatnot. So I think it's a challenge that, that is not unique to Florida by any means, um, but is definitely one that we are kind of just looking at and trying to, you know, set some standards for um, in terms of how we make those recommendations for events with, with following the guidelines, not just as the event themselves, but as our patrons and our attendees and our vendors and our artists are all following those same guidelines as well, too. Yeah, that makes sense. Do you feel like sometimes, because you know you alluded to, this isn't a problem that's unique to, to Florida. I mean, here in New Mexico, we've got a governor that goes on TV every week and wags her fingers at us if the cases are up and <clears throat> kind of pats herself on the back if the cases are down. I, I don't think this is unique to Florida. Do you think, though, because Florida having this history of, like you say, you know, Florida man – and that headline, do you think that puts your the state under a microscope and uh, that people Twitter pays attention more, you know, viral videos tend to just come out of Florida more? Do you think that puts you under more of a microscope? Um, I don't necessarily think that. I think, you know, the political landscape right now is just so unique um, that that really kind of plays more into it than anything else in terms of what's going viral in and out of Florida more so than, than anything else. But you know, we're always going to have that fun little Florida man hashtag. Um, and, well, and and it the tongue so nicely, Florida man, <laughs> like, like saying, you know, Massachusetts man just does not, not flow cool. quite as well. It's not as cool. <laughs> we, love, we love everyone here, you know, so. <laughs> you know, the challenges that we've all faced here in 2020 have cut so deeply for us as individuals and as an industry. What do you think we can do, Suzanne, as an industry and as individuals to help support each other and be a little more in each other's corner right now? What can we do? You know, I will say that's another, I don't know if you've noticed tonight in my kind of themes here, but I'm a silver linings kind of girl. So I'm always kind of looking for the positives and hey, this is, you know, hopeful. This is what we're looking at. This, this is what worked well. Um, one of the things that, that we've seen as an industry is that, that sense of unity, that sense of we all know we love what we do. We love the people that we work with. Um, I haven't seen a lot of, you know, 
um, disagreement about like, oh, we should be doing this or shouldn't be doing this. There was a lot of advocacy efforts um, around the events in the fair industry in particular, um, you know, some lobbying efforts as well too, in terms of just trying to put a spotlight on and raise awareness about who we are, what we do and the impacts that we have um, from, you know, the venue side to, you know, the event side and whatnot as well too. So I think the overall sentiment is, you know, frustration in the fact that there hasn't been a lot of um, financial support for the industry. Um, and what can we do to change that? Um, and how can we shed a positive light on what we do? But also, how can we help each other? You know, how can we come together? You're seeing, you know, smaller events that maybe are now coexisting um, that might not have coexisted before. They're maybe merging together or this event might have competed with another, but instead now they're coming together to, you know, to share ideas and whatnot. So for me, that's kind of the overall sentiment, not just in Florida, but I think everywhere. It's just like, gosh, this really sucks. <laughs> and we want it to be over. But I think the positive side of it is just, you know, continuing to grow those relationships and, and being creative and innovative about how we can do what we do and love to do. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I feel like our events family has been, you know, the, the thought of having an event family has been put to the test this year. And so far with what I'm saying, I feel like we're, we're passing that test. It's a struggle. I mean, there's times that, you know, families struggle together and uh, I feel like we're doing, we're doing pretty well. And speaking of family, uh, your mom, Yes. yes. Uh, right. One kid, two kids, three, how, two. How, two. And how old are they? Uh, nine and 10. Nine and 10. How are they coping with 2020? Uh, so we, when we initially made the transition back in March over to virtual, um, my, my daughter, who's the nine-year-old um, is normally like my comes home from school, wants to do her homework right away, like, you know, star student. My son is very smart, but like hates doing homework, all this stuff. So my expectation for virtual was that my daughter would really excel and adapt at it and would love it. And my son would hate it. And it was the complete opposite. Um, what I neglected to consider was that my daughter is a mini version of myself. She is very social. She is very organized. She likes to plan things out. Um, and you know, the conversion over to virtual without that structure and the social component did not suit her well at all. My son, on the other hand, thrived. He would wake up early, um, because he knew he could get all his work done before like 10 in the morning and then have the rest of the day to do whatever he wanted. Um, he would get his social outlet through playing video games, but online with his friends and they could use zoom to talk to each other while they were playing a video game on another one. And that was good enough for him. Um, but not for her. So they really, um, they really kind of were the opposite of what they thought they were going to be. They're doing both. They, both of my children are now back in face-to-face -face school. Um, they go to a very small school. Um, my daughter has, I think, 10 kids in her class right now. My son, I think, has 14. The school put in place what we felt were like some really good safety standards. Um, and both of them are doing exceptionally well now that they are back in a structured environment um, with some social aspects. I will be the first to admit I will never be a stay-at-home mom or um, homeschool teacher. Uh, they just are not <laughs> my strengths by not any compatible. means. <laughs> not, we are not compatible with that. Um, but, um, but yeah, I mean, we, we hung in there. I think they're, they're doing okay. They definitely needed, but this is what I will say though, too, about my children. 
never a complaint about wearing a mask or following a guideline or anything like that because they wanted it to get back to school and to their life so much that they don't care. They had the plexiglass dividers on their desk. It doesn't even phase them because they're just so happy to be back to some semblance of, you know, what their life was like before. So, yeah, that's what, what Nate, what our son, you know, he's nine and he's, they're still doing virtual. They vote the district voted a month or so back that they were going to stay entirely virtual at least until January. My sense is somewhere between Thanksgiving and December, we'll get another board vote and decide where they're moving. We're having a case spike. So I tend to doubt, I think we're going to see virtual the rest of the year, but Nate managed, they've got, there's a handful of schools that have a parks and rec program at the school that allows like 25 kids. And so he does the virtual school. So from this, he goes into his school, takes his Chromebook, does what he, you know, his learning and they're spread out all through, you know, the cafeteria Mm -hmm. or the gym or whatever. And then they still get recess. You know, they get time to go play out on the slime, be a little bit more normal kid type. Sure. Yeah. Mm Mm-hmm that's helps him a lot. Um, you know, Nate, obviously like your daughter is the kind of a clone of you. Nate is a clone of me and he spent, man, the spring was rough. Every time I turn around, dad, can I go play with it? Well, we don't, you know, we don't know if you can go play or not, right. if it's a good mm-hmm. idea. So he struggled a lot. And I know there's a lot of those kids out there that, that are struggling. And I just, I say to parents, make sure you keep talking to your kids and communicating with them. Cause it's a, it's a real easy, dark rabbit hole to go down. I know I did kind of early in this thing is, you know, initially when it was, we lost the Sydney Royal Easter show. Oh, dang, that was going to be our first major international run. Mm-hmm. And then we lost some runs in Arizona and then we lost Florida fairs. And then it was like OC fair. And I just, Oh God, for a while, for me personally, luckily Sarah was able to keep her job in all this as an assistant principal. But for a while, for me personally, I just felt like a complete loser. Like, what can I do to help support my family at this point? So it can be a really difficult point. Um, Parents, if your kids are doing good, um, kudos. If they're struggling, make sure you're talking and listening to them. Do you have any advice for people out there that are struggling right now? Yeah, I think um, that's kind of the the overwhelming concern is just the mental toll that this takes on people, you know? Um, And along with that comes a physical toll as well too. But, you know, I think, and I think a lot of it depends on your personality. Um, For me, as soon as I could leave the house, I was leaving the house because even if it was just to drive around the block or, you know, when the Starbucks drive-through opened, to get myself out and into that different mindset of like, when you're in the funk, like do something that you enjoy, turn up the volume on that song that you love, drive around the block, you know? So do something, you know, try to think of what those things were that you really enjoyed before and try to find some adaptation of it, you know, um, to, to bring you that, even if it's just a momentary, you know, sense of joy or semblance of, of normalcy or whatever we want to call it. So um, it's a, it's a, it's a hard time for a lot of people. Um, Even if you are still employed, even if you're not struggling financially, the, the mental toll of, of um, 
you know, the lack of social outlet for some people is challenging. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, I just, I just have always tried to, you know, when we talk to friends and even, you know, like, just like you would go through the same thing personally, like my husband one day was like, what's happening? Because I would go out on the back porch and um, work sometimes because the kids were at the kitchen table and they would be on Zooms and sometimes I would need to take a Zoom. So we couldn't all be in the same room. And I remember it was volunteer appreciation week. So I was making a video of like all of our volunteers and I set it to music and I put all this work into it. And then I, when it was all done and I played it, I just lost it. I burst into tears and my husband's like, what is going on? And I'm, he's like, what do you, and I'm like, just the weight and the pressure of like, first of all, being the one completely responsible for this association just hit me all at once. But two, the fact that like these people work so hard for us and for their communities and for what they do and to have them work all year on an event, to have it be canceled the next day, or to have them rely like you on what you do and that you're passionate about and that you've spent all these years building and to have that taken away by something out of your own control, which for a control freak like me is like a big deal. You know what I mean? Um, it's just so devastating. And so, you know, I'm a people person. So I try to do my people, whether that's, you know, we did a family zoom bingo night one night, you know, we do now we can have, you know, engage with people a little bit more as long as we're doing it in a safe manner, but do what works and, and what is best for you and your personality and to try to, you know, get you out of your funk if at all possible. I agree. And I, I feel like part of my struggle was figuring out what per my purpose was. And, you know, Sarah's always like, yeah, but babe, you take care of, you get dinner taken care of, you get in the laundry done, you know, all those things that help support her. And I'm happy to do that. And I understand there's value to that, but there's still something on the inside that's like, but what is my, what purpose do I have? What am I, what's the fulfillment that I'm getting for me? And I think other people that are struggling right now should look for, to try to figure out really, really soul search and find what that purpose is. And it might just be a temporary project. This doesn't need to be the answer to your whole life. Sure. For me, we, Sarah and I had talked back in the beginning of the year about possibly restarting the podcast. And we decided to put it off until after Sydney, because it was a big international show. And we just wanted to focus on that. And then all the pieces fell down for 2020. And we thought, you know, April, May, and June are probably not the best time to talk to fair personnel about how they're feeling <laughs> at this point. Right. But then when IFE canceled a few weeks ago, Sarah and I were talking one night watching a movie and it was like, you know, maybe this is a good time to start that podcast and start telling those stories. So this last few weeks that we've been recording, last couple of weeks we've been recording and now, you know, editing gets started and we're getting ready to start dropping the episodes. That's given me purpose. And I feel like that's been a real valuable thing. So if you're out there and you're just sitting on the couch right now and you're going, you know, I lost my job at the fair or I'm just having a really rough time, find something that's a purpose. Even if it's, again, it doesn't have to be long-term. If it's two weeks, if it's six weeks, find something that gives you purpose. I love that. That's awesome. Suzanne, I really appreciate you coming on the show today. If folks want to uh, reach out and get a hold of you and chat with you about all things festivals and life and that jazz, where can they find you? I would love that. Reach out anytime. Easiest way is probably just to check out our website. There's a contact us page. It's got my cell phone, my office line, my email, and the website is ffea.com. ffea.com. Now, before we go, 
everyone who comes on the show does a speed round of questions. Oh boy. Okay. Oh boy. <laughs> every time I, every guest I've said this to, they give me the same look like, oh my God, what's he about to ask? Yeah. Well, you didn't forewarn any of us. So that was I okay. Was, I'm ready well, though. And some people, there were a couple of people who asked um, if I could send them some of the, the list of questions ahead of time for the interview. And I did, but then I just put speed round questions at the end. I didn't actually list the questions. I just put insert speed round questions here. Okay. So here we go. Question number one. This is really difficult. What's your favorite movie? Uh, uh, pretty woman. Corn dogs or turkey legs? Uh, corn dogs. Does pineapple belong on pizza? Never. Oh, you're awful human being. <laughs> when you, when you travel, name one item that you have to have with you. Uh, my flat iron. Okay. I have really frizzy hair. I'm sorry. Okay. <laughs> you would saying flat iron. You're talking to a ball guy. I have no idea really what's going on there. <laughs> If I opened the music app on your phone right now, which song would have been played the most? Mm. Oh, that's a, so I have a running, I know this is not a quick answer, but I have a running playlist, like for when I run, mm -hmm. um, that is almost completely comprised of like 90s hip hop music. So it would have to probably be like hypnotize or something in that genre, most likely hypnotize. So Notorious B.I.G. Notorious B.I.G. Yes. Or Mace. Those are like my top two normally. Oh my goodness. Yeah. I would not have picked you for that. I right. Really I know. Have. Most people don't. It's shocking. You just made up. You just made up for the pineapple on the pizza. <laughs> Thank comments. you. Thank you. I appreciate that. And last question. This one gets a lot of people. Who okay. was your first celebrity crush? Ooh. Um, oh gosh. I don't even know. Who is your? Can I tell you my current? My cur yeah, current. Say who's your current celebrity crush? Channing Tatum. Channing Tatum. Yeah. I see. I can answer that question both first celebrity crush and current okay. celebrity crush with the same person. Let me have. Let me have it. Who is it? Danica McKellar. Oh. Winnie Cooper Winnie from Cooper. the Wonder Years. Yes. She's. I want to say forty-six now. She okay. looks like she's twenty-seven. I do love Mason Winnie Cooper. I'm not going to oh, lie to you. Completely. Yeah. Completely. She's amazing. Suzanne Neve, director of the Florida Festivals and Events Association. You know, we probably won't see each other in person for a while yet. Um, so Sarah and I and, and Nate, we want to wish you happy holidays and we'll look forward to hopefully seeing you somewhere in person in 21. Thanks for coming on the show. Thanks, Robert. Have a great day. You've been listening to the Fair Game Podcast. Air Game is a production of Robert Smith Presents. For more information, please visit robertsmithpresents.com.